0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Are you ready to begin?
1: Yes, I'm all set
2: here. Any program about science or scientists today is. Almost
1: bound to focus on space. Hey Houston, the Mister Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and this time we're at the Surrey Space Centre in Guildford.
0: We'll have a man with two brains, also known as UK Space Minister David Willits, a virtual ride into space, and a shuttle astronaut who wants to save the world from disaster.
3: You could, at the very small end of the scale that we're talking about, destroy a major metropolitan city. At the very large end, you could be talking the end of human civilization. Why are we taking this risk?
0: Now, when I was growing up, if someone had told me that in the future, Surrey would become a centre for international space missions, well, I'm not sure... I'd have believed them. But the University of Surrey is now at the forefront of Britain's space industry. And this is where the Surrey Space Centre is based. We're here with Aaron Knoll, a lecturer in electric propulsion, and Chris Bridges, who was also behind the first phone in space and a forthcoming mission to dock two satellites using an Xbox. Chris, I'm going to start with you. We're here in the Space Centre. What's going on here at the moment? the space
4: center in the room we're in at the moment is the the ground station and it's a room where we have sort of uh, facilities and radio equipment on one side and then teaching kind of equipment on the other so in here in this room we have soldering radios computers all around and students can come in to do their projects or in fact like i do to actually do teaching but also to pick up real spacecraft uh, and real missions from things that we've launched or other people and other amateurs are launched
0: aaron you recently launched the virtual space ride project which as i read in one newspaper piece actually said it would enable the public to ride into space for the cost of a pair of trainers so uh, what is this virtual ride into space
2: well, the idea is we're going to be sending a, uh, panoramic high-definition cameras up on a high-altitude weather balloon. So, strictly speaking, it's the edge of space, uh, but hopefully up to about 30 kilometers, which is about three times as high as a commercial airline. And the idea is that we're going to take all of this video footage and then uh, stitch it together to create an immersive experience that the public could uh, participate in. Uh, We're going to be doing this using the uh, Oculus Rift virtual reality system. So the idea is that you would put on this virtual reality headset, uh, and you would be able to experience the ride into space as if you were actually flying on the balloon. So that would be uh, you'd be able to turn around in 360 degrees and see what the view is like as you're going up. Uh, I'm excited to uh, see that, as I imagine most people would be, because I've never been to space. And uh, for the cost of actually launching yourself into space, it's exorbitant. So this would give people, just for a very small amount of money, uh, the opportunity to see what it's like firsthand.
0: And you've just had a, a pretty successful demonstration flight with a cuddly toy.
2: Uh, Yes, that's right. So um, in partnership with EARS, which is the Electronics Amateur Radio Society, uh, we did a test flight this last weekend. Uh, We sent one of our high-definition cameras up along with a uh, GPS satellite uh, transceiver so we could actually pick it up afterwards. And it was a very successful flight. I was really impressed with the quality of the video. Uh, We recorded at uh, 720p resolution, 60 frames a second, Uh, and there was no problems. Uh, We managed to recover the whole thing. Brilliant video footage. Uh, You could really see the curvature of the Earth from that height, which I was surprised. And you could also see sort of the layer of the Earth's atmosphere appearing as blue. And then the blackness of space above you.
0: It does look pretty amazing. We watched it just before we started uh, recording this and the cuddly toy was the little deer mascot of the university or stag mascot of the University of Surrey. So you not only have the blackness of space, the blue earth, you have a cuddly toy, (laughs) a revolving cuddly toy. But you're right, the resolution is, is amazing. The
1: cuddly toy looked pretty terrified. As it plummeted down towards the earth,
0: (laughs) sort
2: of unexpected, but yes, the uh, the cuddly toy looked distinctly alarmed after the balloon popped, and it's hurtling down towards the planet. So, fortunately, the cuddly toy was unharmed in the uh, project, uh, and now, as I understand it, is actually for auction on eBay.
1: Now, you flew just one camera with this test project. You're looking to fly multiple cameras to create a a 3D image of that same sort of experience of a balloon high in the atmosphere.
2: Yeah, that's right. So we wanted to test with one camera first, obviously, to make sure we could recover it to see what the video quality was. But when we actually do the mission, it's going to be 12 cameras. There's going to be six along the equator of the balloon, three upward-facing and three downward-facing, and that'll cover the full sphere, uh, the full immersive sphere, that we could uh, stitch the images together together so that uh, you can look in absolutely any direction, up, down, left, right, doesn't matter.
0: Chris, you're involved with the communication aspect of the, the images between the camera and the software, is that right?
4: Yeah, kind of. So uh, the cameras themselves, the GoPros, are actually very, very small and self-contained. Um, one of the things that we'll be working on together will be to make sure that it gets the power that it needs to do, and as they keep on functioning right to the end.
0: Because you've got quite a variation in temperature differences, haven't you, from going from the surface of the Earth, even up to the edge of space.
4: Yeah, I mean, even I mean, up to the edge of spaces, uh, you can, for it can be minus 20, it really does de- just depend on what's going on in the local vicinity. But yeah, it can get very cold, it can also get very hot as well, so there will be variances for sure.
0: And obviously this, you must be delighted that the test flight, it worked. The battery didn't die yeah. on you. Didn't freeze.
4: Yeah, there was no absolutely no problems with that. And you know, working on Aaron's project and doing something together, something as exciting as this is going to going to be really great. Now, Aaron, you funded this not from
1: the university, but through well donations, really, on on Kickstarter.
2: Uh, yeah, so we uh, launched the project originally on Kickstarter. Unfortunately, that project was unsuccessful, but. During the advertising of the, uh, the Kickstarter campaign, we were actually approached by a private company uh, who agreed to fund us outright. So we have the financial resources to now go ahead. So we, the mission is a go. But we're planning on relaunching the Kickstarter campaign, but for much, much smaller amounts of money so that we could get a lot of people on board with the project. Previously, we had advertised £50 for the, uh, the full immersive experience. I think we could uh, get that down by a factor of five easily because we have the money that we need already in hand uh, just so we could capture the public uh, imagination.
1: And it's all going to happen pretty soon.
2: Uh, Yeah, so the uh, final flight is actually in July, where we collect all of the uh, video footage. Following that, uh, for about three months, there's going to be the software development. Uh, Again, with this uh, private company that's come on board, they're going to give us a hand with that. So hopefully what we'll see at the end of the day is a very uh, professional-looking final package that's it's going to be stunning. I'm very excited about it.
0: We are too. After seeing the uh, the video of your test flight, and we will put a link up to that on our Facebook page, um, we're pretty excited. In fact, we'd love to have a go ourselves because we've got a GoPro camera, and boy, that's, uh, I think that's on our list of things to do, isn't it? Yeah, it looks quite straightforward, actually.
1: Uh,
2: yeah, it's surprisingly <laughs> easy. I was expecting more complications than we encountered, but it worked the first time we did it, which is you could rarely say something like that. And uh, it was about, I think, 200 quid all in for the, uh, the mission aspect of it. So that's like balloon, filler, gas, the uh, payload box. I think the GoPro camera that we're using is an, ex- an extra 200 quid, but it's really accessible. I think uh, people in the general public don't realize how easy it is to actually send something up to the edge of space. Uh, and it's a great thing to become involved with uh, if you're looking to take up a new hobby, let's say. <laughs>
1: Well, we're going to talk more about the missions that are controlled from this room in a few minutes' time. First, though, here's a question. Are we complacent about the risk of being wiped out by an asteroid? Former space shuttle astronaut Ed Liu certainly thinks so. He's the CEO of the B612 Foundation, which wants to set up a privately financed
3: defence system for the Earth. Ed told me what the project involved. We are finding threatening asteroids that could hit Earth before they find us. We're going to find and track them using a a space telescope that will allow us to protect the Earth from being hit by asteroids. And it happens surprisingly often.
1: And why do you have to do it as a
3: foundation? And why isn't a space agency doing it? Why isn't the United Nations doing it? The B612 Foundation is raising the money privately, philanthropically, to do this because the space agencies are simply not doing it. Now, you can argue with them all you want about what the reasons are for that, but they are not doing it. And so we felt we had no choice but to go out there and find these asteroids because we know how to deflect them if you find them first. And at this point, if one of these large asteroids hits us, it's not bad luck. It is a lack of foresight. And what would happen if one hits us? just depends on where it hits, but you could, at the very small end of the scale that we're talking about, destroy a major metropolitan city. At the very large end, you could be talking the end of human civilization. Why are we taking this risk, is my question. There's a 30% chance in this century, in you or your children's lifetime, that we'll have an asteroid impact large enough to destroy a city, somewhere on the surface of the Earth. It may not hit a city, but multi-megaton explosion somewhere on the surface of the Earth. 30%. Why are we letting that happen? We can prevent that. So are we complacent, then, as, as humans? We've got this capability of being able to see them and being able to deflect them? In general... Humans have a tendency to discount things that they can't remember happening in their lifetime, which is why in New Orleans we saw them not fix the levees uh, prior to Katrina, even though they knew that they, they better do that. There are enough supporters out there of B612 who can see a little further, and, and we're looking for more of these heroes, folks who will step up and say, you know what, this is something that we ought to solve for the planet, okay? Again, you could wait all you want, argue if you want in, in Washington and London and all these other places, or you can just solve the problem. And we found a group of supporters that are helping us do that. And we need more. You know, we're asking people to go to b 612 foundationorg and we're asking them to step up to the plate. How much do you need? Grand total, we need about as much money as it costs to build the wing of an art museum. So a few hundred million dollars. And presumably, if you get the money, you launch this spacecraft, which will spot asteroids. If you find one, there's going to be a scramble to, to put together a mission to deflect it. Yeah, actually, deflecting asteroids is relatively easy compared to finding them. So, that, so you, you would move on to the easy part of the mission, which is deflecting the asteroid. And, in fact, the funding of that, I, I maintain, would not be an issue because if I tell you that an asteroid is going to hit in this particular country at a certain time and a date, you know what, it's their priority to prevent that. I think funding is not an issue in that case. The issue is now. How do we fund finding them when the governments are sitting around doing nothing? How do you deflect them, though? Oh, you simply run into it with a small spacecraft, and we'll give enough warning for us to do that. Really, the issue is, again, finding those asteroids, and that's what the B612 Foundation Sentinel spacecraft will do. We'll make that data available to the whole world. So you've pretty much put all your energy into this. You were working for Google. You were a
1: NASA astronaut. You must really believe in this.
3: Yeah, there's nothing bigger I could do. This is a bigger project than anything I've ever worked on, by far. At some level, you're lucky if you get to work on something that will change the world, and I feel like I'm really lucky. Do you think you'll, you'll get there, that this will launch? Oh, yeah, we're going to launch this thing. We've already put together the world's finest spacecraft team, bar none. There is no greater spacecraft team in the world than the B6 Foundation Sentinel team, and we have the right people on this, and I know that when people do hear the story, people do step up. They are making this happen.
1: Astronaut Ed Liu, head of the B612 Foundation.
4: The end of human civilization. are we, are we suitably scared by that, Chris? Blimey, I mean, with, with <laughs> movies like uh, Gravity and uh, other sort of uh, things like that, absolutely. I think, you know, these, these things perhaps are predictable. There is a statistical probability that these things are possible in the future. And why shouldn't we look at it with a bit more serious concern?
0: I, I was quite impressed. With his commitment, but also the way he referred to the cost quite disingenuously, I think, with a wing of an art museum, and that's very much what sort of goes on here, isn't it? It's sort of not quite cheap and cheerful, but you you do look at things in terms of cost and comparison. So, do you think he's got a good chance, Aaron? Well, I think the cause is
2: noble. So, if enough people uh, rally behind him and he raises, uh, what did he say, three hundred million, then I think. I think that is sufficient money to put something into uh, to space to do that purpose. I'm perhaps less interested in a project's uh, cost-saving capability versus how much money do you actually need to do the job right. Obviously, if we're looking at something to deflect asteroids from Earth, it's uh, quite important to do that job right. I have every confidence that he
1: scoped that appropriately. What I find extraordinary about this is that people treat the asteroid threat... I mean, this is a real threat. The Earth is spinning through the space at whatever
4: phenomenal speed they treat it as a bit of a a bit of a joke i think it's just very very divorced to what we see perhaps in popular science and what goes on in the media day-to-day life you know if you've got politics or other things that really people are worried about or what's going on locally around their home that they can tangibly see hear and touch then they're certainly perhaps more real than if something slowly enters the atmosphere i I think what people
0: do is treat it more as science fiction Mm. It will happen, but only in the movies. Yeah, and
4: things like, exactly, things like gravity, which have been able to capture exactly people's imagination of what exactly happens if something does go wrong and how
0: human life can be effective. That suddenly becomes very real.
1: You're listening to the Space Buffins Podcast.
0: The Space Boffins podcast is produced in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and on our blog at spaceboffins.com. And in fact, the reason we're actually here at the Surrey Space Centre, covering the virtual ride into space, is as a result of Twitter, because we asked for some suggestions over what should we cover and uh, hey presto. So if you've got any ideas, do let us know.
1: We've heard from an astronaut and if astronaut wasn't a cool enough title, how about Minister for Space. Well, that's how UK ministers for universities and science are often referred to. And funnily enough, they don't mind at all. It's one of the few jobs in government that ministers get an overwhelmingly positive press. And since 2012, the UK's spending on space through the European Space Agency has increased by around a third. A British astronaut will fly to the International Space Station in November 2015. And the government's even backing UK launches such as the Skylon spaceplane and considering having a British spaceport. Well, I've been talking to the current space minister, David Willits, and I suggested to him that until recently, the UK space industry had succeeded despite government? Well, certainly government has had a pretty limited role, and we are
5: not going to have a space budget of the scale of France or Germany, but then a lot of that goes in on conventional launches. I mean, you can look at it two ways. Because we haven't got our own launch system, in fact, we're the only country ever to have had a launch capability and then renounced it, whenever we make a satellite, we've got to kind of pay someone else to launch it for us. You've got to hitch a lift. I'd say it's no accident that it was a British author who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We are absolutely space hitchhikers. That means he's given us a real incentive to do small satellites, lightweight satellites that don't cost much to launch. And I think they're really important for the future. And having companies like Surrey Satellites now stands us in good stead.
1: What about launchers? Because the government is now putting some money and certainly is backing to an extent the Skylon system and the Sabre engine being developed in the UK. Yeah, I think, and by the way, I should have said at the beginning, I'm not an
5: expert. I'm the servant of the researchers and the industry and try to understand what they say and if government can help them then deliver it but my impression is that what is happening is that a conventional big publicly funded launch capability model is coming to the end of its life and it's got at least two threats one is new technologies which you know perhaps virgin galactic launching satellites or skylon reaction engines so there's a, there's a new technology moment and then secondly there's new commercial models with commercial providers of rocket launch facilities like SpaceX coming on the scene you put those two together and i think the next 20 years are going to see much more radical change in launch systems than the previous 40 years And and I think that sort of turning of the kaleidoscope is a great opportunity for Britain. And one of the reasons why I, together with the Chancellor, took the decision that we should put funding into reaction engines is I rather think when there's a set of new challenger technologies coming along and some great ones emerging in Britain, we should bloody well back them and give them a run for their money. I can't guarantee they will succeed, but it's just possible that we have got at the moment being hatched in reaction engines one of the main launch technologies
1: of the next decade. Uh, and what about a UK spaceport? That's also something you've talked about. Yeah, I, again, my view is that as the world is
5: changing and people are looking for an accessible route for passengers, in obviously one option is in Virgin Galactic, but elsewhere as well, into space, the idea of the UK having a spaceport is on the cards. And that is something we are looking at i mean no final decisions have been taken there are quite tricky issues of kind of where which kind of airspace is used there are obviously strong arguments for having them on
1: a coast and fortunately britain has got quite a lot of coast let's talk about uh, human space flights this was something the uk did not do until the last few years are you excited about the fact that the britain is is genuinely backing this now and we have the first official British astronaut flying to the International Space Station in 2015. I'm very excited indeed and I'm very pleased
5: to have been able to secure this but my excitement is not the important thing. What I want to see is millions of British school kids excited and all the evidence is that having a British astronaut up there on the space station suddenly brings the space adventure to life and people realise what it's about and the more schools that are identifying projects for tim to carry out the more he can communicate with them the more online information there can be about his training program i really want to harness that and crucially tim peak wants to harness it he's a great guy he's got young kids of his own he absolutely sees the
1: opportunity do you see this as the start of a backing for human spaceflight in the UK or is this just a a one-off in the same way that the Helen Sharman mission backed by UK industry was a one-off?
5: Well there was a set of uh, negotiating issues there and I don't want to reveal every detail of my negotiating position but look I think human spaceflight does bring with it something special that you wouldn't otherwise get and there's obviously first of all the sheer excitement of the communication opportunity. Also Tim up there will be doing serious research on phenomena like human aging. A a healthy astronaut in conditions of microgravity for weeks and months on end goes through something rather like a speeded up aging process. Their bones thin, their muscles are, are not as strong as they were. So you can help understand aging and how to reverse it if you track what's happening to a person in space. There's lots of of
1: spin-off, There's lots of useful research we can do as well. And what's your feeling about the International Space Station? I remember, this is quite a long time ago now, interviewing one of your predecessors who described it, albeit off the record, as an orbiting white elephant. That presumably is no longer the feeling in government. No, it's a great global science
5: project. Look, I've seen Gravity. I think it's an exciting movie. I think the whole place is not just
1: fascinating, it's worthwhile. And it's great that at last Britain is participating in it. UK Minister for Universities and Science, David Willits. Note, no answer on the should the UK have more astronauts question. Interesting, something to follow.
0: I also want to take issue with you, Rich, calling Tim Peake Britain's first official astronaut because Helen Sharman was Britain's first astronaut. I think Tim... Unofficial?
1: No. I not government-backed, t- not no, publicly-backed? Well,
0: I, I think to the public and to women in general, that's by the by. I, I think we should refer to Tim Peake as the European Space Agency's first British astronaut. OK, well, we can argue but about this later. You know, I've got my Jermaine yeah. Greer hat yeah, on can, we can argue about that later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I
1: would also want to add is that he mentioned uh, Surrey Satellites. So he's referring to SSTL, which is a spin-off of the department here at the University of Surrey.
0: You both looked quite pleased to sort of hear that mention there. Uh, yeah, it's good to be uh,
2: recognised. And I, I think it comes from the uh, excellent work that SSTL had been doing here and continue to do today.
0: Because you've worked for the Canadian Space Agency before coming here and at Stanford.
2: Briefly at the Canadian Space Agency, I did an internship there for 16 months. Uh, And it's a very different environment working for a large government organization than it is working for a, a small startup company like SSTL. There's pros and cons, but one of the things I really love about being here is the fact that there's a really a lot of enthusiasm for trying to do things in a different way trying to re-scope uh, the amount of effort you need to put into a project in order to do the job right. Uh, and I think that they've, uh, they've really got the model correct. It doesn't need to cost as much as it did in the past because we're dealing with uh, more capable technology
1: now and we're dealing with much smaller satellites as a result. How feasible is is a UK spaceport? That was one of the things he he was talking about there.
2: Uh, Well, it's perfectly feasible. Uh, If you have money to build a spaceport uh, in Scotland, then there's enough launch corridor there, you could start doing uh, polar orbiters uh, leaving from the UK. It's all a question of uh, money and finance, and I'm very pleased to hear him say that, because it sounds like it's got government support now. And I think it would be a great thing for the UK.
0: I was surprised that it's more about the corridor, i.e. there's a good bit of ocean and sea there for things to go badly wrong and no towns and cities, as opposed to, as most people probably would think, Scotland? That's a terrible idea because the weather is so bad.
2: Well, the launch corridor that I was mentioning, if you fly directly to the north of Scotland, uh, there's a great area of sea. Uh, where if something goes wrong with your launch vehicle, you're not going to be endangering populated areas. Uh, And that's actually crucial uh, for the selection of a spaceport.
1: So putting it there makes a lot of sense. Please address all comments on the Scottish weather to (laughs) at Science Nelson rather than at Space Buffins. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, Chris, let's talk about this this room we're in, part classroom, part mission control. Mm-hmm. And you're actually controlling a spacecraft that's up there right now. And this was the first phone in space, or is the first phone in space. Is it still working?
4: Uh, yeah, the Stram1 uh, satellite, which is a CubeSat, so it's a 34 roughly centimetre spacecraft. Uh, yeah, it's still functioning well and still still operating up there and still bleeping away every 90 seconds or however often i i want to set it to and what does it do Currently at the moment, uh, Strand actually has a few mission goals. Uh, primary one, first of all, being training of students and of s- perhaps less experienced staff, that Aviva come into the Space Centre here, or whether or not they've gone over to the research park to work with SSTL. And that's really sort of trying to help solidify uh, what we do together and understand all the different processes behind how you can get a, uh, an industry that's growing and growing really well in the UK to then work with universities that are changing as well. But it's a phone in space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, the key thing that we've been doing is uh, figuring out how you can use the tech that actually we take for granted now that we have sitting in our pockets to actually use that as cheap tech and access wider communities to think that actually you've got a satellite pretty much in your pocket. Other than solar cells, you know, it's pretty much there.
0: Now, we've featured Strand 1 and Strand 2 on our podcasts previously. Yes. Strand 2, you're using Xbox, Connect technology. What stage are you at at the moment?
4: So we've currently been uh, testing a lot of the technology, we've, uh, and this has really just kind of happened in uh, slow time. So everyone uh, has kind of gone back to their day job, so to speak, uh, with regards to uh, the strand sort of. Uh, first spacecraft and I've had uh, students just starting to interface all of the pieces together and there are lots of other missions for instance uh, that are going on here to do with sort of deorbiting technologies so we you know we're everyone's uh, sort of sharing the resources as we go Uh, and as sort of missions progress I mean then we're just kind of putting it together letting students figure out how we should best do this uh, so that they
0: learn something along the way. I would have loved to have come to a university like this. I really really would have, yeah. It's not too late. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid it is.
4: (laughs) It's never too late. I have people in in the class and, you know, I'm really privileged to have the experience of being able to say, you know, I've just barely sort of turned 30 and, you know, you've been able to to build, design, operate, launch and talk with sort of spacecraft. uh, And to do that all, I mean, there's not many places, not just in the UK, but in literally the whole of Europe that can do this sort of stuff. And the idea of using this Xbox Connect technology is so you can dock
1: two spacecraft so you send up two and they dock together?
4: Yeah, that's right. So with uh, Strand 1, that's one spacecraft testing a uh, limited sort of subset of technologies, and we kind of want to expand that really so that you can put together things in space. And docking and undocking is actually a really expensive part of what we do in space currently at the moment. So we have the ATV, the automatic vehicles that go up to the ISS, and they do use what we call LiDAR systems. They're kind of like mini uh, radar systems that use lasers and, and light to actually figure out where an object is. And of course, a lot of people have these now in their living rooms or in their bedrooms, and they use them for gaming. It's about hundred quid, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, can- and for the, I mean, and there's a lot of technology that's now less than that, and it's how you can then utilise that, and again, take the same ethos of flying, sort of commercial parts that are quick and easy to do, um, and then demonstrate that actually they can survive all the different effects that we have in space and do that then at a reasonable cost. It's all about managing that risk and, if, and that's something that we, we've historically done very well here.
0: You have indeed. Our thanks to our guests, Chris Bridges and Erin Ola at the Surrey Space Centre here in Guildford. There'll be some pictures of the centre on our Facebook page and no doubt on Twitter via at Spaceboffins.
1: And all comments on Scotland at Science Nelson. Thank you. And that's the Space Boffins podcast produced in partnership with the Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. I'm Richard Hollingham.
0: And I'm Sue Nelson. We'll be back next month. Thanks for listening.